Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Hey everyone, welcome to Roadcase. Thanks for joining me. I'm Josh Rosenberg, your host, and uh, we got a great episode today, and we got a bunch more coming up. And if you've been listening and tuning in, I appreciate that. And you know that I'll remind you to get involved with the Roadcase community, and there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. Um, you can uh, join the party over at Patreon and support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash roadcasepod. Uh, we got a couple of goodies over there, and we're going to also be having some exclusive content at Patreon for subscribers. So go check that out. Uh, you can also email at info at roadcasepod.com. I love getting emails. I mean, who doesn't really? And uh, you can check us out on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we also have a YouTube channel at Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you already know that you can subscribe to this platform or to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And while you're there, it would be really helpful for us if you could rate and review Roadcase as well. So I'm really excited to have Jim Keller on Roadcase. Jim is a co-founder of the 80s band Tommy Two-Tone. He co-wrote the tune that you'll know as Jenny 8675309, the famous 80s tune that I happen to think is a pretty cool tune, but been rattling around in my head for a little while. And um, Jim will talk to us about what that means to have been a pops in a pop sensation band at the time and what that evolution looks like uh, to what's Jim, what Jim is doing today. And um, I mean, they opened up in the eighties for Tom Petty at Red Rocks among other things. And um, they did crash and burn using his words. Uh, But as he also said, uh, pop bands are not meant to be long lived, but that song uh, lives on. And we'll hear some stories about that. Jim then went on to become the manager for the classical music composer, Philip Glass, um, and said he was kind of living a schizophrenic life, um, working in the classic music world during the day, and then jamming at night. Um, His love of music Music goes deep, and he is a musician's musician who plays with a ton of his uh, musical friends and musician friends in New York City, uh, first at the Lakeside Lounge and then at the Rockwood Music Hall. He's been doing that for many, many years, kind of an open-door musician uh, jam policy, and uh, we'll look at that a little bit. But Jim is about to release a new solo album called By No Means, and it comes out on February 12th. He's got a bunch of really great musicians playing on that album with him, including David Hidalgo of Los Lobos and Nels Klein of Wilco. It's also produced by Mitchell Froome, who has done work with Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney, among others. Uh, It's a really beautiful album. 
Thanks again for tuning into Roadcase for this episode with Jim Keller. I know you'll find it really interesting and his background in both uh, the pop world and the classical world and just the pure musicians world, the jamming with others provides some really uh, interesting contrasts and great stories to draw on. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. I want to thank Jim Keller again for being here on Roadcase. And here we go. Hey, Jim. Thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm good, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome, man. I really appreciate your time. Um, where are you joining us from? I am in scenic Brooklyn, New York. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, there's, where there's about two feet of snow, so it is very pretty right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I, I'm yeah. in Chicago. You probably know. Um, yeah, it snowed a ton here, too, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, like a foot here is kind of a non-event, but... Um, well... Um, Thanks for joining me. We were just talking about um, Jenny. Uh, what was that number again? Um, eight six seven seven two three. I'll, I'll leave it to you. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows the number. Um, and just like, what a great song that is. And um, you know, I, I had some trepidation to start out the interview with that, but like, you're that song. So, what's that? What has it been like over the years to have that legacy? Um, well, it's all good. For yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's funny, though, that, you know, after the band crashed and burned, um, you know, there was a dip where it didn't really it kind of fluttered around, you know, um, the ground. And then, I don't know, 10 years after it was hit, it started slowly percolating up. And it's just wild how it's it's continued, um, you know, all of a sudden, like my generation and then the generation below and the next generation, next generation. And now there's, you know, I just posted a video. I got these 14 year old kids from Massachusetts sent me uh, a video of their band playing it in their garage. <laughs> yeah, and you know, they're, four, they're 14 years old where, you know, they're hearing it somewhere. But, um, you know, fortunately it, it was for me to be a part of something that there's clearly some little piece of magic that floats around with that song. And I'm just, you know, I feel lucky that, I'm, in, you know, involved in it, you know, yeah. it, well, it doesn't have to happen that way. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it, it you know, I mean, it, it's, it's all good. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not blowing smoke. I, that's one of the, my favorite songs from the eighties. I mean, it's yeah. still, you know, it, and I revisited it with, you know, in front of, you know, talking to you and, mm -hmm. um, it resonates, man. And it, it, it's just something about something about that tune. I don't know. Maybe it's just the number. <laughs> maybe it's just. Well, we knew I knew it the first time because I wrote that with a friend of mine named Alex Call, and um, he had put the basis together of that song. And we and I, he and I write together. And I showed up at the little crib he had at the time out in, mm -hmm. near San Quentin in uh, Northern California. Yeah. And I heard that. and I went, man, this is what is that? And we immediately started playing with it and kind of finished it off. And um, I didn't think it was going to be a hit. No one thinks that, but we just knew it was intoxicating. There was something about it was fun. And I remember then I brought it into the band and my partner, Dummy Heath. And as soon as I started playing that chord progression, it was just something happened. So it was like, giddy up and go. Yeah. And it's, it's true to this day, fortunately. And then, you know, between what Tommy and I did with it and, and his great vocal on it, um, yeah. and our guitar parts, uh, there's no such thing as a bad version of that song. You know, you can go to, hear any bar like these 14 year old kids and it's kind of like louie louie or something where there's just something about it that just works and um, yeah if, yeah 
which is great. Yeah. And of course, um, I watched the video and with Roadcase focusing on live music, I couldn't help but be interested in the fact that it was based on a live performance of the song with the video, you know, the story interspersed uh, and edited throughout. Right. So that was very interesting to me. How did that, was that, was that a conscious decision? Like we're going to, we want to get out there. We want to play the song. We're not just going to do a song with the back being in the background in the story. Well, the recording is all done in a studio. So well, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. But still, you guys are out there playing. The, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, totally. How did that come about? I, you know, honestly, that was so long ago. <laughs> I, I don't even remember. <laughs> this is actually a memory test. <laughs> yeah, was, I'm the wrong guy. I'm the wrong guy for that. I, all I remember is that it was, I think it was in Pasadena. It was like in some concert hall uh, in Pasadena where we shot that video. I believe, I think that's what it was. Yeah, and I don't even, I don't, we might have even been playing live when we shot the video. I don't even remember. It might have yeah. been like, I think it might have been we did a, f- a free gig like in an afternoon shoot or something when we were doing that. Uh huh. Well, I mean, you know? it, it just, it just was interesting to me because you've been, um, uh, cause you've been playing live so much and, uh, we'll talk about the Rockwood Music Hall stuff, but it really was, uh, was interesting to make that kind of jump, right. To yeah. at least for, for me from a, from an interviewing side. So, oh, yeah. Oh. um, but now you've got this new album out, um, by no means and, uh, coming out on, um, February 12th. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So, and that marks kind of you coming back after, um, seven years or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my fourth, um, solo record, you know, in the last 15 years or something, mm-hmm. but there was a long pause between the last one and this one, um, for various reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, I'm just happy it's here. You know, it was, uh, it was fun to do. It's always fun. I mean, I, I write all the time. I play all the time. Yeah, I just did. I just didn't put a record out all the time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Did uh, did COVID kind of kickstart you into um, being in the studio with this album, or was that just like? No, the record was done before COVID started. Oh, except okay. for except for one track, which is the one that I recorded on my iPhone and sent to Mitchell, and he kind of blew it up. No, we recorded this out in LA before, and then it just the release got postponed because of COVID. Um, yeah, so it was done with David Hidalgo from Los Lobos and Bobby mm-hmm. Glob, who's an old friend of mine, plays with Jackson Brown now, whatever, a bunch of great players. Yeah, you had Nels Klein on there too, who's a Chicago-friendly well, Wilco. Yeah, and Nels did, uh, and a bunch of guys play on this one track. We just, oh, okay. did this whole side thing um, where they all played on this this one track called Don't Get oh, Me cool. Started. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right on, right on, right on. And... Um, after Tommy Two Tone, you got involved for a long time as uh, Philip Glass's manager. Um, I still am. Oh, you still are. Okay, I thought yeah. I didn't know if that had that was one of my questions. Is that? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, how did that come about, and what was what was that the the genesis of that, and um, was well, that a departure for you at the time? Departure? I didn't even know who he was, let alone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, you, what you got to do is you got to be young and be in a rock and roll band and go crazy and have a great time. And if you're fortunate, have a couple of hits and then crash and burn and then have, mm-hmm. you know, no way to make a living for a while. And mm-hmm. then you try to have, figure out what you're going to do. And, you know, for me, there was that, you know, that was the arc it goes up and it goes down. Yeah. And, and when I went down, I didn't, you know, I was still playing live a lot, but I wasn't really making any money. I moved to New York 
And so I was trying to figure out what to do and uh, as I got older. And so I, through a random set of circumstances, met Philip and he was looking for somebody at that stage to help him. And um, I kind of talked my way into a job. And so we've been partners with us, you know, for over 25 years working together. Right. Wow. Yeah. Did live music figure into a lot of what he did? I mean, he, I know he did some opera. I'm not super familiar with his work, but. Um, well, it's a totally different paradigm. You know, he's in the classical yeah. world. And yeah, he of tours, course. But... He, he's toured his whole career and he's had his ensemble and you know, there's been a lot. Uh, always a consistent live component for every for his career and he does about 10 different things live performance is one of them either with an ensemble with you know film by himself solo all sorts of different stuff right right yeah. um i'm going to digress just for two seconds because i there was a question i wanted to ask about jenny where obviously you guys played live around that album and that song where did you put it in the set at the time do you remember was it always the last? Was it always the last song, or was it the first song? Was it the first? I've seen guys actually do the like their biggest one. They've done like the first song, and then they've played it again for the last song. <laughs> well, they're entitled, and God bless them if they had a hit they could do there with. But uh, no, it was the first song on the record because we knew we didn't yeah. want to waste anyone's time. Let's get straight to the hit, right? And um, and it was always the last song. And I remember at the peak of that. You know, it was so exciting. I mean, you know, the first record we had a top 40 single on and we toured with Petty. That was the big thing for uh, us. That we, uh -huh. we went from playing bars, literally playing at roadhouses up in Northern California to opening for Petty at Red Rocks. That was insane. Wow. We did that. wow. What, we did, do you remember what year that was? Yeah, it was 1980. It was the Refugee Tour. Oh, uh, damn the tor damn the torpedoes yeah yeah and we were literally we were playing bars that's where we couldn't make a living in san francisco playing gigs so we'd play you know roadhouses and uh grange halls and all this kind of crazy stuff in northern california for like hippies and cowboys and rednecks and right. and i remember uh tom sent his lighting designer who was a guy who had been playing with him since florida he was in the mud crunch band, the whole thing, Jim Lehrman. I can't remember his last name. Uh -huh. He flew up to San Francisco, drove for two hours North to, um, uh, where we were in this bar, the branding iron in Ukiah, California. <laughs> and we, and we played a gig and hung out with him and he loved the band. And then he drove back down and flew back down to LA and told Tom and said, they were great. And then we ended up opening for him at red rocks like four weeks later or something wow ridiculous. wow that must have been amazing what was that like well i was scared shitless are you kidding <laughs> yeah I mean, you know it was completely wild um and i remember the thing that was astonishing about it was uh we had been on the radio in uh denver mm -hmm. and i didn't really know and i didn't know what the effect that stuff had and so when we started playing instead of people throwing stuff at us I saw them singing along with what we were doing. And it was like, my God, they actually know the songs. Uh, and that was the thing that was, that was it totally stunned me. Yeah. Like, you know, the, pow the power of radio, you know, and, right, and then right. sub subsequently the power of MTV. But, you know, I hadn't been firsthand, had any firsthand experience with that point of the connection between live performance and the radio and the impact and all that stuff. So that was very cool. Yeah. Anyway, I think we're talking about eight, six, seven there. We used to play it twice when it was a hit. Yeah. And that's I, what I thought. I was like, why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'd play it and then we just play it again because people didn't want to go home. You know, they just, it was at that moment, it was such a spark with that song 
that it was like a shared experience. You know what I mean? It wasn't about us up there being rock stars or anything. It was kind of like, we're all in this together. This is like a man, this is really cool. And yeah, so we wow. did, do it, we did do it twice a few times in those. Kinds of times. <laughs> and at Red Rocks, Tom didn't come out and sing it with you at the end. <laughs> well, we, we, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you said that band, uh, that band crashed and burned. What do you, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, well, everybody, you know, people always say, why did you guys break up? And that's never really the question. It's why do other bands not break up? You know, I mean, oh, you're yeah. not pop music is not supposed to be here for that long. Right. Uh, you know, pop culture, you know, if you look at, I mean, I always remember being astonished at one point when I read how old Benny Goodman's band was when they played at Carnegie Hall. They're all in the twenties, like early twenties. And, you know, it's our, you know, rock and roll is kind of an aberration because, um, you know, we're not, you're not supposed to be around forever. And I think the baby boomer generation in a way has kind of extended the life of you know, this, but you know, the who and the Rolling Stones as brilliant and amazing as they are, I don't really have any business still playing, you know, being like at the forefront culturally, you know what I mean? Right. So yep. that's a long winded way of saying, you know, pop bands aren't really supposed to last for a long time. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to crash and burn. And most of us do. Matter of fact, 90% of them crash and burn. Um, and, you know, I feel like I'm just fortunate that I had the, I had the, <laughs> I had the, the the peak to crash from. In that, yeah, that you guys you know. crashed super hard because you were like so way up there, right? Yeah, and then we did. We had all the classic stuff, you know, the all the all the uh, the um, you know all the food groups were you know the drugs, the whatever, the fighting, the record labels, the management. That you know, it all kind of crashed at the same time. And you know, we weren't built for longevity, and I think other bands are. And you can, I mean, I can tell the difference now. And I certainly didn't know it then. I mean, I was relatively cognizant of it, but, um, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you think it's just going to go on for a long time. Um, but there are, you know, there are some artists that are definitely built for the long road and some that aren't, and we weren't really built for it that way. We were a ratty bar band, you know, and Tommy and I always fought the whole time we were together. Right. Um, so it, it was kind of logical that we didn't last a long time. Right. But that must have been fun going around and playing that song and playing, just having that sort of notoriety and at least having that one just huge hit to play at, at, at shows. Um, clearly, you were getting incredible response from it everywhere, even live. It must have been just off the hook to just to, to be part of that. What was yeah, that like? Yes, it, it was totally great. You know, to uh, I remember we were opening for Cheap Trick in pittsburgh i think when our manager came back and said we just hit the top five with eight six seven and it, it kind of fluttered around you know and then it took off mm -hmm. and the audiences and the thing is we had already booked the tour so we were playing either opening dates or in small venues and the places were going nuts um yeah. when that you know it was just so exciting it was totally great right right um, so you were playing you were playing kind of smaller venues and then got picked up by cheap trick was that before you were well, playing no, with Eddie or no no this was after that but we were um we were doing opening dates for various people but then when the record hit we had already booked this these tours where we're still opening for people yeah and yeah at that yeah. point we could have headlined but we had already committed ourselves right. to either opening for someone or playing a small bar you know a, a small red house or i mean a you know whatever a small club and without we could have totally outsized but we had already committed ourselves. So we were playing these small places 
um, with a, a fantastic energy because of the hit. Yeah. Did it change the way you interacted in the band and your mindset going forward and writing other material and like subsequent tours? Um, well, God, it's hard to really remember, but, um, you know, we didn't really, we tried, we tried to duplicate and were unable to duplicate the writing, uh, from that song. And there were some good songs on the third record, but there was nothing that rose to that, you know, that spot. And at that point, we were also falling into all those holes that I yeah. alluded to earlier. So. Kindly referenced as the food groups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But then, um, so then you're in with Philip Glass that, I mean, it, it was like, I, yeah, depart, I mean, it's completely different. Right. But, um, what were some of the most, uh, the most interesting things that you encountered in that world? Well, totally different. You know, I'm, I, I'm like, you know, playing the Lakeside Lounge was my resident, you know, residency here in New York for, for years. And then when that closed, I moved to the Rockwood Music Hall. So I'm playing those kind of venues with all the fantastic players that are in town here, you know, and I have mm -hmm. a revolving, revolving door group of musicians that I work with. Yep. And it's kind of like whoever shows up and, you know, there's 25 or 30 guys that can play a gig with me at the drop of a hat, but know my stuff. And then during the, during my day job, I'm up, you know, at the, at the um, opera house, you know, at the Metropolitan Opera House. So it was yeah. a little, it was a little schizophrenic. Yeah, I bet. bet. But you, that, that's admirable. You kept doing what you're, you know, your your heart was into it. I'm sure your heart was into the Philip. I mean, being a manager for Philip Glass, obviously, but you were doing what what really inspired you as well was to get in front of audiences. Tell me a little bit about what your what how did you how did that come about and how did you um, get this coterie of um, musicians to play with you and what was your what, what's your what was your thinking in in starting that was it a formal arrangement or informal arrangement? Well, I actually stopped playing for about for a bunch of years when I started mm -hmm. working with Philip because I just felt like I you know, I wasn't getting anywhere with the music and I had to dig into this to try to figure out how to make a living. Yeah, and that didn't that didn't work. And at a certain point, it just my life didn't work. And I, I you know basically. Aside from my family, music was the most important thing to me, period. So when I started playing again, uh, I started just tapping into this whole group of um, musicians that are in town. I, I have a jam every week, and I just uh, text, call people and say, who wants to play Tuesday? And <laughs> I literally, up, up, up until the pandemic, matter of fact, Thursday, March 12th, was, mm -hmm. my last, was the last jam. Yeah, and that was that was like Andy Hess and whatever. It's a bunch of great players, and um, uh, so I started doing that, and basically it was fun, and people liked coming in because I basically, you know, had a room, a studio, and whatever we were playing is what was happening, and it was a chance for me to work up my songs, but I wasn't dictating how people should play or what they should play. So it's like whoever's in the room on any given day is what that song is that day. So, which is totally cool, you know, because right. some drummer will start off and play a completely different groove than the guy who was in last week. And uh, so I was doing that regularly. And then I just started taking that and formalizing it a little bit and structuring it so I could go then play, you know, gigs yeah. with the bands that were available at the time. And I mean, at that point, it was uh, Byron Isaacs, who's in the Illumineers. And mm -hmm. he, he's, he's also my writing partner. He oh. was in it, and Chris Masterson, who's Steve Earle's guitar player, and Glenn Patchaw, who's Bonnie Raitt's keyboard player, and wow. I, wow. I don't remember. You know, you know. I mean, it's all like everybody's, they're not making a living with playing with me, believe me. So they're all like, who's who's not on tour? Yeah. And 
and then we play a gig. And, you know, when you live in a place like New York where and in Brooklyn, where there are at this at this point right now, it is just unbelievable how many just really soulful players there are here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's I feel incredibly lucky every time I'm playing. And, you know, when I play gigs, I always have. You know, it's not just the five guys. It's, I mean, I'm not making, I'm not exaggerating, but there's probably 12 people that show up on the band, on the stage. You know, I have people sit in constantly and we mm-hmm. change the whole band. I'll play half a set with one rhythm section, then change the rhythm section. Um, and it's really mm-hmm. um, part of it is just, um, you know, that shared experience and all those guys that, lo- you know, it's basically just love playing and, yeah. in a loosely structured kind of setting. And that was, um, <clears throat> it's at, it used to be Lakeside Lounge and now more recently yeah. it's at Rockwood Music Hall. Yeah. Um, was that, uh, would you charge for admission for those that wanted to listen or how would that work from a, from a, you know, spectator, listener, fan standpoint? Well, <laughs> I, I just had this thing where I don't want a musician buddy not showing up. He's got it cause he's got to pay 10 or 15 bucks. So I never charge at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guys were doing it with me because they wanted to, you know, it's not, no one was up there for the money. And, uh, as much as I'm a firm believer in the musicians should always be paid at the same time, I don't want to charge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, it was just, it's kind of, it was a really loose, a loose thing and, and it'll be back, but I don't know what it's going to look like when the, you know, when the whole thing dies down with the pandemic. Yeah, I'll come check it out. But um, so anyone could just walk in and and uh, and and check it out. And um, w- yeah, yeah. And and was had you contemplated um, using a rehearsal hall somewhere in a more formal setting, or was this kind of like that in a, a proxy for using a rehearsal hall, but had the feeling of being of playing in a venue, which kind of added to? Well, the thing is, I, the thing is, I've been doing this long enough, and with the same like 25, 30 guys that, you know, any three or four groups of those people know half the songs I play in a set. And then if I was doing new songs that I wanted to actually, okay, I got to, we got to figure out what the beginning, the middle of the end is. So we'd have like, I do, I'd figure out a jam where we could go through, you know, some of those things. So it wasn't like completely, you know, freeform jazz, but, um, uh, it wasn't like we were sitting around studying and rehearsing at that point. It was guys that knew most of the stuff. And then we'd figure out if there were new songs, we'd, we'd work them out you know, before we played the gig. Right. And I noticed Rockwood Music Hall is doing some live streams now. Were you getting involved yeah. in those recently? No, I, I haven't done that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure they're doing any more either. But uh, no, I haven't done any live stream stuff. We did, we did do a video recording thing for the new record, which we're kind of putting out as promotional stuff. But, you know, it's a lot, even that it's heartbreaking. But, you know, um, literally that was March 12th when those guys, we all walked out the door and that was the end of it. March 13th. I remember there was a, you know, that was like the D-Day uh, right. here anyway in New York. Um, and the, the only, the next time I was in a room playing was whatever it was, two or three weeks ago when we did this thing. You know, everyone's wearing a mask except for me. And it's it's just, it's just peculiar because you can't read what the other musicians their facial expressions. Yeah. Oh, yeah interesting. So right. it's, it's like, Oh man, this is like, does this suck? Or is, I mean, is this fun? You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, of course it was fun, but the thing is you can't read that. Normally you're like looking right at your buddy and you know, like we're did all. That, uh, yeah. How did that affect you musically? Did it affect well, you musically? Yeah, it did because it was just felt a little off. 
you know, just mm-hmm. a little off. And and I had to kind of, you know, you play through it anyway. It doesn't matter. And everyone plays yeah. great and the stuff sounded great. But it's just a little odd. You know, you're just not, you know, it's new. And obviously everybody's dealing with this. Everybody has to do the same thing right now. Yeah, so. right. I mean, we're all dealing with it. I mean, yeah, yeah especially, but it, but um, I mean, you're even harder hit when you've got so many musicians in the same room that you're bringing in a rotating basis. Small bands with like four guys, they're just creating their own bubble and just, you know, not playing with masks on when they're yeah. that kind of, yeah, you can't do that at all, know. right? Yeah. No, not, not conscientiously, you know, not really. Right, right, <laughs> right. No, <laughs> well, not, uh, I mean, I, not in I good conscience. Have, yeah. Yeah. No, I have friends that, that are doing that. They create a little bubble with their three buddies or whatever it is. And, and they've been able to do it, which is great, but not me, not yet. Anyway. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I'm yeah. just yeah. thinking about, you know, how that works. Not uh, no judgment at all. For sure. Everyone's got yeah. their own, uh, own line in the sand on that. Um, yeah. um, so what was the most interesting thing about working for, uh, for Philip glass? Uh, well, first off, he's a genius. So there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's I mean, that small factor of that. being a musical genius. Yeah. And it's just kind of amazing because, I mean, I didn't know anything about his music. And I remember he asked me when he hired me, we've worked it all out. And I basically said, look, you know, take a shot with me and I'll, if you don't like it, don't pay me and I'll leave. But if you like it, and that was 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is a guy that gets up every day and writes music. And, you know, I always say, you know, what is the, I write almost every day and, you know, you got to show up. And uh, I think the thing, the biggest thing I learned from Philip is that you just work hard. You know, that's what he says. He always says, what, you know, what is your, the key to your success? He says, get up every day and work hard. And, you know, he's committed to what he does in a big way, but he also is really, really smart and yeah. extremely, extremely talented. And he's, you know, he, he's a guy who also came up on the street in the way that he did it his way. He, you know, he didn't, go the path of least resistance he said screw you i'm doing it my way and people hated his music for years um some people still do you know but he says too bad this is who i am this is what i'm doing so that was very admirable yeah i i love the you still got to show up even though he's some you know just an incredible musical genius you know you still have to do what you do yeah i mean i always say people say you know what you know, if I want to be successful, what should I do? You know, young artist. And I, well, the first thing you got to do is make sure you love what you're doing and figure yeah. out a way, figure out a way to do that, you know, live performance, whatever it is, but do it because you love it. And, you know, then you, you can t- hopefully take that, at, transition that into a career. But, you know, hopefully you got to start out with something that you really are passionate about. Did you draw inspiration from that? Because you were, and while you were still playing, doing live gigs and playing your own music while you were managing him all those years? You know, it's, uh, I mean, in all honesty, I'm not sure how much I really got in terms of from Philip that applied to my own musical life because I was doing that anyway. And I always, I've done that aside from that short period where I stopped. I mean, you know, it was like I, my, that was my day job. And then I would take that and I basically have to shed that skin and go into the studio and it's just i gotta leave that behind so it's there isn't a lot that i took from that with me um aside from the work ethic you know um and i'm not sure how much impact that had on me but you know that work ethic is a big deal you know yeah with with anything you're doing it doesn't really matter but you know with the arts where you're it's up to yourself to have the you know the drive um and you know it's not like i'm making a lot of money from my music and you got to 
you got to really want to do it bad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then when you do the payoff is fantastic. You know, I mean, you know, every time I play a gig, I'm up there looking around with the players I'm playing with and I'm just going, man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world right now. Uh, I mean, it was really funny this one time there was an old friend of mine came to one of my shows and the Mm -hmm. Rockwood is Rockwood two is not a small place. It's a medium sized venue. And she says, you know, God, this was unbelievable. What are you going to do with this? And I'm like, I started laughing. I'm going, this was it. That this was. This, <laughs> I am yeah. doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I, you don't get it. This is it. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to have that in your life in any way, man, it's really great. And, you know, the live thing is you know, it's huge. The, you know, how, how fantastic and fun that is. Are you getting off on being with your buddies that are musicians and is, um, is it, or is it more of a, um, is it more of that for you than it is with the audience or with the fans, for example? Well, it starts with the musicians. Uh, you know, it starts with me writing a song and then it goes, I goes into a room and then I'm playing and, you know, I'm not in there. Those guys are not in there because they don't like it. The only reason they're in a room with me is because they're enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, so there is this, there is this magical shared experience. You know, the only equivalent I've ever had of that is in sports where, and I mean, not, I'm not a great athlete at all, but if I, whatever I was playing, you know, whatever sport, and you'd kind of like have this unspoken language and with music, you know, it's not like we're sitting there going, man, this was really great, but you just know it. And then the, the floor elevates when shit's really happening. Yeah. You know, it's, and, you know, you guys just look at each other and you go like, whoa, man, that was happening. You know, it's, someone might say something, but it's so that shared experience is so primary. And then you take that and put it on a live stage. So you're standing with a band of players where you have that shared camaraderie and it's deep. You know, it's uh, it's it's beyond, it's the different animal than just like friendship or whatever. It's this other thing. It's a musical thing. And then when that's, so you get up there and that's happening and, you know, people hear that, you know, an audience picks up on that stuff Mm -hmm. and, you know, the performance thing is a whole other beast, but, you know, before you're performing to have that core of energy with players, um, again, it's just a magical thing. And, and, and as an audience, people pick up on that, you know, they pick up on, whether the players are really digging the shit out of what they're doing. Yeah. And it's contagious, it's contagious. And especially if you have decent players, but I mean, it doesn't matter. You'd be a his garage band can have the same energy, but if the passion is there and there's that shared thing, and then that translates off the stage, then the audience becomes a huge part of that. Yeah. Are you drawing a distinction between the interplay that you have with your other musicians and the performance aspect of it? Yeah, totally. You know, and it, it's simultaneous but they're two different girlfriends, you know, um, you know, the, that interplay that's going on on the stage is very personal and very intimate. And it's acknowledgement of like tiny little things that just spark your life. You know, it can be just some little riff that Mm -hmm. somebody plays. It's like, Oh man, where did that come from? And like the other guys know it's there. Um, and then there's the projecting uh, into the audience and communicating with the audience and me as the front guy, you know, that's what I, I, which I also love doing and that, but that's a little different than 
being in that pit with the players. Yeah. I mean, there are educated fans out there that hear that little piece that you're hearing too. I, I, yeah. I would like yeah. to, I was, sometimes I'd like to count myself in that, <laughs> in that part of educated audience that like also gets off on that thing that I know the musicians are getting off on as well on stage yeah. because it not only sounds great, but it, I also understand how can it can be technically difficult and it's also just a vibe where it all kind of comes together on a musical basis. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not that people don't get it, but, um, they don't, they don't have to because the energy of that, that that creates that spark that's created it is flying off the, off the stage, you know? So people, they may not articulate the exact thing, but they're, they're impacted by it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how has Rockwood sort of developed as, uh, in and of itself, apart from also your, um, uh, from your performances there and in these impromptu sessions, um, do you have a sense of how it's developed as a place for musicians to go to, um, in the city, either passing through or, um, a place where, uh, budding musicians have played, uh, just to get in front of, in front of audiences and where it sort of sits in, that ecosystem uh in uh in the city well those places change you know historically for you know whatever over the years um and i don't know how long rockwood's been there at this point mm-hmm. ten, more, than, more than 10 years i guess yeah, um, yeah 10 ish yeah um and you know i remember when the lakeside closed and we loved the lakeside because um they uh you played there all night <laughs> and in new york <laughs> In New York, there's like five bands every 15 minutes. There's a new band going on, you know, in right. most clubs. And the Lakeside, it was just you. So you do, it was like being out of town. You know, it was like being up north, you know, out of out of town, like uh, up north of California or whatever. And mm-hmm. you had a bar or a roadhouse and you basically had to keep dancing all night. Right. So there was, that is kind of unusual in the city. Uh, it was at that time. And the thing Rockwood has done, uh, first off, they have great sound systems. So the rooms sound great. And musicians know, and man, they hate playing rooms that don't sound good. So their rooms sound good, and they have three rooms now, uh, or they had. You know, they had a, a little bar that I used to play at too. That was, you know, kind of just a little bar, and you play with four or five guys crammed on yeah. the drums are on the floor. And then they had the bigger room, um, and then they have another kind of more of acoustic kind of room downstairs. So they had all these different options. And I would always play on a Monday night. Um, and Monday night is, is uh, tr- it's like musician's night because it's um, the theaters are dark. So all the guys that are making a living on Broadway, um, they all go out and that's when they can play gigs, you know, uh, regular gigs. Right. So um, it was, it's like, it's not like a rule, but it just turns, you know, has historically been, you know, it's like when I'm playing a gig, I mean, you know, there's, there's easily 25, 30 musicians in the house. Uh, without even counting my band um, because that's just everyone's out and they're all checking out who's playing. And again, because I have a lot of people sitting in, there's different people coming in. I literally just say, I'll see you on my own. James Maddox there. Come on up, play, you know, come on, man, play a song. And then the, the bands that are on before and after me are also musician friends that, you know, they've got, you know, so everyone kind of gathers around like, like it's the watering hole, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic, man. I, that's just, yeah, and I, I hope it comes back. <laughs> yeah, well, it will. It will. 
Yeah. Are you, you say that like, uh, I mean, this is a temporary break in COVID, right? I mean, are you saying that because you don't, do you think, are are there certain dynamics that you think, uh, um, uh, whereby your musician buddies aren't, this is just, it's not going to be happening in the way that it used to happen for some reason. I have no idea. You're just kind of talking about just whether live music is coming back. Well, when, and at what point it'll look like you can go into a sweaty bar where you're body to body, you know, and hear a band. I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, it's been a year. So, I mean, you know, it's just I have to assume that two years from now, hopefully that'll be going on. But then there's going to be this gray area in the middle where you're going to have to be safe. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like. No, we'll have to do yeah, it. It's going to look like a gray area where people are being safe. <laughs> yeah, or they're not, depending on what state you're in. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I think um, you know my experience in talking to people is that uh, you know music doesn't want to be that um, um, that industry where people are getting sick <laughs> because they're enjoying no. it. I know. Yeah. yeah. It's the, you know, it's, it's not just like the bars that want to open in town. Right. I mean, this is the music industry that has a conscience and a moral compass as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so there'll be fewer people at gigs and people will be probably be masked for a little bit, but um, you know, I'd like to be in the room with some live music being played at some point. I'll, I'll happily, uh, you know, wear a mask for that with half play on. By that time, I think half the people in the country will probably be, um, you know, vaccinated. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's conjecture, but things are going to kind of look a little there's going to be a new normal. And then there's going to be like, oh, yeah. Remember that two years ago? That's right. Exactly. So let's let's get this quick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm everyone's impatient. I'm willing to to take the steps uh, to get to where because that's what we're going to have to do. You know, we're gonna have to walk that for a while. what brought you back into the um, into the studio, and was it were, were there certain external conditions that um, uh, whereby um, you waited quite a while for this new record? By, and the material, I, I I love by the way, Thanks. really great stuff. Well, I think a lot of it was that my work got busy, and I have another company. I represent a bunch of other people, um, um, and I I just I had to kind of I didn't have the headspace to really focus on doing a record. And then I've kind of shifted that back away from work more. So there's more space for myself. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a project with Mitchell Froome, who's the producer and Mitchell, who's actually in crowded house right now, but he's produced a hundred, you know, he did the crowded house records way back when. And he's, he's in, he was in crowded house. No, he is now just coincidentally. It's funny. Cause they're uh-huh. going on the road. Oh. Um, in Australia and New Zealand and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. you know, he's produced Randy Newman and whatever, a million people. Uh, I sent him a bunch of songs and said, look, you know, you want to check this stuff? I, I just sent it. And I, so I thought I'd just send it to him and he'd say, yeah, that's nice, Jim, you know. Um, but he came back and he had this idea of a record right away uh, with the material I sent, which was really much uh, much more acoustic and more intimate than my other records. And I loved what he was, what he was um, attracted to about the mm-hmm. songs. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a while just kind of going through all the songs together. And then we did these sessions with, uh, with Mitchell as a keyboard player and Bob Glob and David Hidalgo and Michael Urbano out in LA at Mitchell's studio. Um, and so the Genesis really was kind of Mitchell hearing my songs and 
gravitating towards the ones that actually that I record right here in this room on this uh, on my iPhone, and it's like me on the acoustic guitar, not even using a pick, and it's usually early in the morning, and I have a really low voice because I'm just kind of singing the structure of the song and the lyrics. Yeah, and so we basically made a record that was much more intimate in that way. Because what happens is if I write a song like that, then I take it into a room with a bunch of players and I I kick the whole thing up an octave just so I can cut through the band. Yeah. So what what we did is we basically stayed down at that intimate place. Yeah. Where I where I am right now, uh, with me and an acoustic guitar and just my thumb singing really quietly. And so we did the whole record, and it's a really simple record. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a beautiful sophistication in simplicity. And when you get that, you know, place where something can feel and seem really simple, doesn't mean it is. Um, but when it feels that way, there's something really great about that when that works. Um, so it was really, um, you know, eye-opening for me to do a whole record in that, in that way and, and very gratifying. Yeah, I kind of had to do a mental double take. I'm like, is this Jim singing? <laughs> Like a couple of times, just because it's so, it's, it's beautiful. It's low and it's resonant and it's like, it's got a really, really great quality to it. So it's super interesting to hear how you put that together, how you well, came to yeah. about that. Do you like singing yeah, I mean, in the morning in general? Well, that's the one I, that's when my head's clear. So that's when the best writing is always done before yeah, you look, yeah. before you look at a phone or anything. And the reality is, is that that's my voice. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you can try to, I can try to, sing like james taylor but i don't i don't or whoever it is tom petty right. or take the pick you know like you you know and i think that you know sometimes it takes a long time to figure out where your sweet spot is so at this stage of my life you know this is a sweet spot so it's it's you know which is great right do you envision taking those songs out on the road yeah, I'd be out there right now if it wasn't for what we're mm-hmm. doing totally yeah mm-hmm. i mean i had a i had a gig in la whatever it was in March 18th. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, which we canceled. Uh, yeah. So, you think? You, know, <laughs> yeah. So you said you're up. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I know the whole world has changed, but um, you said you, um, there was an interim in the interim. You were also, you've been representing others as well. How, what do you mean by that? Well, I have a company that uh, I work with. I, I was Ravi Shankar's publisher and Anushka Shankar's daughter, not, not Nora. Um, I work with Tom Waits uh, and a, a number of young composers who were more known in the kind of film and opera world. And it's mm-hmm. just all the stuff, all the stuff that I learned from Philip. It's not the pop world. I kind of like, I kind of, I've kind of like driven a line in the sand and like, there's the work side and then there's me <laughs> on the right. other. So aside from Tom, Tom, you know, is a little of both planets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm interested also uh, in Philip as being a composer. Would would he? Did you take him around on a tour around the world, or how would he? Would, how does that work with a with a, a classical composer when others are with? Like, did he have his own? He had a central orchestra at the Met, and then they would travel, or how? Where? How would he get to other cities and have his works play to people around the globe? Well, someone like Philip has so much going on all the time, all over the world, and he doesn't have to be there for it. Because if he has an opera or a symphony, he doesn't have to be at it. It's just mm-hmm. some other, unless it's a premiere. Um, but he has uh, the Philip Glass Ensemble, which has been around since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And they tour, and they still tour. 
he's he's not doing it anymore. Just recently stopped. Um, but they've been doing it since the 70s and going around playing with him and his music. And he also, as I was saying before, he goes out and does solo touring. Um, so we have all these different branches. And it's very different, you know, if like Paul Simon does a gig and it says Paul Simon, you kind of expect Paul Simon to show up. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. But if it's Philip Glass, you know, Symphony Number no. 12, you know, Philip's not going to be there unless they say Philip will be, you know, pretending or something you know it's his symphony so it's one of the benefits of the classical world is you don't have to show up at every gig and he's got stuff going yeah. all over the world almost so every day what's the quality control if you will for lack of a better term than when that in that scenario well there isn't any the same way you can't paul simon can't go into a bar and and say stop singing bridge over troubled waters because you're off key you know once you once something is published you're Anybody can perform your stuff. Um, so some things are good and some things are bad. Um, and the mm. same way with the same way with pop music, you know. Um, uh, I remember when Ellis Costello made a stink when Linda Ronstadt recorded Allison, or he pretended to make a stink. I'm sure he liked the hit, the checks when they came in. Yeah. Um, but at that time, he was still had his new, you know, punky attitude. But you know, once it's published, anybody can anybody can sing your songs. So you, there is no quality control, within reason. You know, yeah. Right. Interesting. So he's sort of basically licensing his songs around the world and other uh, opera houses or other are picking it up and 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 playing it if that's what's on their program. Is yeah, that... they pay performance. They pay performance income the same way every time yep. a song's played on the radio, they get performance right. income. Right. Did you, were you able to travel the world as a result of that job? A lot, but I didn't tour. I didn't do it. We had uh, hired other people to do all the physically running around because I've never, I mean, I never was really that interested in the touring life unless it was me. Uh, I mean, I travel a fair amount, but I didn't, I didn't really want to go out and do the tour bus routine with Philip. Uh huh. But you said on your own, though. Have you done that with Jim Keller Band, or how well, is, what did that look like for yeah. you over the years? Well, mainly, and mainly, mainly has been here in New York and in Brooklyn. But mm -hmm. when the records, like when the record last record came out, I did some touring then. When that was, you know, it was like seven years ago at this point. Right. Um, but it hasn't been much, and I was, you know, we're looking forward to this year, but we'll have to hold off on that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think everyone has been. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. Um, wow, that's uh, you've you've done so many incredible and interesting things along uh, your journey, right? I mean, it's it's as fascinating. Long, as long as, fascinating as, long, as long as the journey keeps going, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the George Burns thing or something like. You well, know. I don't know. I mean, to me, it's all about you know, it's about what I'm doing to now. You know, it's like um, I remember I used to drive. Tommy Heath, my, my partner, and Tommy Tutor and crazy because I write all the time. And, you know, what's exciting to me is what I'm worked on this morning. And what I finished, you know, two months ago, a lot less interesting than whatever it is I was working on this morning. Right. So, you know, uh, there's, jo there's joy in both, but uh, it's really to be able to, you know, kind of look, keep moving forward is really where it's at well so does that mean when you tour this new album that you'll be playing just new material you just you're you're constantly working on songs will you play those in a live setting when you go forward and oh i've already thought this out because 
this record is so different. Like when we just did this live video thing, mm-hmm. you know, it's me, me with acoustic guitar and it's a very different vibe than, you know, my bar, you know, club gigs at the Rockwood, I call it the usual mess, Jim Keller and the usual mess. Because <laughs> great it, name, it, great name. You know, because it's like, okay, we're going for all the shit and we're, you know, some stuff is organized and some stuff is not going to be organized. And that's the way right. it goes. Right. But with the new with the new record is is a much more specific thing. So I've always imagined that I'd if I was fortunate, I would do my new record and then I'd have <laughs> the usual mess show up for the second half of the show. Um that would be cool. In a, per- in a perfect world, I'd do both. <laughs> right. Odds of that happening probably low. Uh, well, no, odds are actually pretty good. I mean, I can certainly do that. Yeah, if you do it. In, uh, uh-huh. well, I oh, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, because I mean, you want to go to so LA. Guys, they're, right. They're all over the country, right? You can just like. Oh, yeah. I have a set of gear in Los Angeles. I leave it at a oh, studio man. and I do the same thing out there. I go out there. Who wants to play? You know, so it's, you know, whatever. It's all the, my buddies out in Los Angeles. And we do the same thing. We go in a room yeah, and we right. play. Right. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait, man. I'm psyched. I'm psyched. Well, hopefully we'll get to Chicago and <laughs> bring the mess. <laughs> Yeah, you better. Yeah, that would be great, man. I would look forward to it. So, thanks again for joining me, Jim. This has been um, sure. this has been really interesting, man. Thanks. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't tax your memory too much on all the old stuff, man. Well, it just made me seem old if I couldn't remember. So, but that's all right. <laughs> I was in college when Tommy when Tommy Two Tone was writing. <laughs> almost in college, you know. <laughs> oh, there you go. Then you're so, not eating chicken. So. I'm no, yeah, no, I'm not too far behind you. I mean, you know, yeah, you can cool. see me on this thing. This is not, this is not blonde hair. This is kind of grayish. <laughs> you know, you can see this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks again, Jim, for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, good luck with the the new album, by no means. And it was that February twelfth, I think. Yep. That's great. That's Thanks great, man. Me. Awesome. Thanks again for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Okay, that was Jim Keller, co-founding member of Tommy Two-Tone and co-writer of 8675309 Jenny, which, I don't know, that was just mind-blowing to me to talk to Jim about that song and about the pop phenomenon around Tommy Two-Tone at the time, and it was so cool to hear his stories about playing live at Red Rocks in front of Tom Petty um, and playing with Cheap Trick and others and what that was really like to be part of that incredible pop sensation of a song. And of course, there's the fall afterwards with the crash and burn, but Jim loves music and uh, Jim's a super hardworking musician and learned those lessons from Philip Glass about getting up every day, writing music and um, how... Being a creative artist, uh, you just have to do the work and you've got to show up. And if you're doing what you love, the hard work is not so hard to do. So you had better love it. And Jim put that into practice almost on a daily basis with his jam sessions uh, with friends and the open door policy at Lakeside Lounge and Rockwood Music Hall in New York City, where he'd play in a pre-COVID world, uh, just get together with a bunch of friends and uh, pull them out of the audience and play different tunes. And, you know, he was just practicing his craft on a daily basis. And, 
He's got an album coming out uh, this week on February 12th called By No Means uh, with the tons of great artists playing on that album. And uh, it's really beautiful. So check it out. So I want to thank you all for listening to Roadcase again and for tuning in. And I want to thank Jim Keller for sharing his experiences with me on this episode of Roadcase. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And if you are able to and like to support Roadcase, we have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. <laughs>